Welcome to the Athletes in the Arts podcast, hosted by Stephen Karajinas and Yasi Ansari. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Athletes in the Arts. For Yasi Ansari, I'm Stephen Karajinas. We have a really cool show for you today. So if you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe, leave a review, tell some friends, spread the word. But if you want more information on performing arts medicine, please go to our website at www.athletesandthearts.com. There you'll find all sorts of resources and links to help you out. You can also find information on our new sponsor, School Health, the leading national full-service provider of health supplies and services for school-based health professionals. Please go to www.schoolhealth.com for your scholastic health care needs. All right, so our show today is really special. We have talked before about musicians who go from the pinnacle of success to the depths of despair, from achieving their wildest dreams to living their worst nightmare. Now, sometimes these stories have sad endings, but in this case, the story is one of triumph, success, and renewed purpose in life. This is the story of Ryan Dusick, one of the founding members and drummer for Maroon 5. He started out as a hot high school baseball prospect but when Maroon 5 released their debut album, Songs About Jane, in 2002, he suddenly found himself the drummer for the hottest band on earth. And this is no exaggeration. With hit songs like This Love, Sunday Morning, She Will Be Loved, and Harder to Breathe, Maroon 5 sold 10 million copies of their album and toured all over the world for the next several years. But the constant touring took a toll on Ryan, and he left the band in 2006. His subsequent struggles, both physically and mentally, are detailed in his memoir, Harder to Breathe, which came out in November of 2022. It's a gripping account of his life, his friendships with Adam Levine and his Maroon 5 bandmates, his struggles after leaving the band, and way more. But most importantly, it details his recovery and laid the groundwork for his work today as a counselor, life coach, and therapist. It's truly inspiring, and I encourage everyone to check it out. But in the meantime, we get to have Ryan join us today. So Ryan, thank you so much for being on the Athletes in the Arts podcast this evening. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, I know you have a very uh, long and interesting history about uh, you know, music and, and, and mental health work. But one of the things I wanted to talk about first with you, because I know your background uh, started out with the band Maroon 5, but um, and you guys were a big success right off the bat with your first big release. But um, in most cases, people think that a band just shows up and they're a hit and that's all it is. That's that easy. But it sounds like you guys had a really difficult time at first trying to break in and had some failure along the way. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I, you know, I like to refer to us as the overnight success that took a decade <laughs> right? <laughs> because uh, we started the band when we were teenagers um, in my parents' garage in 1994 when I was 16 years old. And we were just a, a bunch of idiots dreaming of, you know, being rock stars. And we actually, we got pretty good pretty quick. And we were playing around town here in L.A., playing uh, on the Sunset Strip. And, um, and we got a record deal right out of high school. And we thought, okay, well, we're, I mean, that's the way you, it starts. You know, you just, you, you get a record deal and then you become big stars. And, <laughs> right? But uh, everyone was telling us that, and they, they spent a ton of money on making a record and a video and putting us out there. Um, but we hadn't foreseen that there was the possibility, of course, that it would flop. And 
that's what happened. And so at age 20, I, I had a failed record deal under my belt. Um, you know, already <laughs> at the ripe old age of 20, 21, uh, has been <laughs> in, the, in the music <laughs> industry. So, you know, it was, it was a weird reality to face that as much as, as precocious as we were, as much as we had going for us very early on in our career, that there would be a setback like that, which um, we had to really pause and, and ask ourselves, is this going to work? Are we going to keep going? Uh, for a moment there, we didn't know if the band would keep going uh, as it was before that. So do you think that because you're so young with that failure, uh, yet you actually have probably have some so, sort of advantage there versus like if you were like in your 30s and you flopped to be like, oh my gosh, you know, more of a midlife crisis kind of thing versus 20 years old. It's like, hey, I can, what the hell? I'll just do whatever I want and just go go for it again. Yeah, I, I definitely look back at, uh, at that as being a really a, a fortunate thing that we uh, had that experience as young as we did. Certainly when you're talking about popular music, you know, there is definitely a point at which you get over a certain age and it's less and less likely that you're going to have that breakthrough. Um, it's, it seems like it's getting younger and younger too. You know, you see these kids that are uh, 13 years old and already it's like, you know, if you don't have your, your Disney contract, you're, you're, you know, you're not going to go on and be a pop star. So, um, right. but you know, for us, I think being a band and everything, we had, a, we had a round two in our twenties and we had learned a lot the first time around, both in the successes we'd had in terms of uh, just, you know, being in, in a big studio and working with a big producer and having all of that experience going out on the road. Um, and also learning from the, from the disappointments and the failures and what not to do or how to do it better the next time around. So you had a quote um, that's actually mentioned in your Wiki, in the Wikipedia about the band, about uh, between the time that you started making the album Songs About Jane and the time you reached the crest of your success, you went from being starving musicians, wondering what the future held, Riding a wave of success beyond our wildest expectations. So, what was the kind? What kind of um, like? How did you guys handle that stress? I mean, how? I mean, that's that's kind of success. It seems like it's maybe obviously very thrilling and positive, but it obviously it seems to come with a lot of negatives too. Yeah, and you know, when you're in the middle of it, uh, it's a whirlwind, but you're right at the eye of the storm. You know, so you don't have a whole lot of objectivity. Um, we were on the road for essentially four years in support of the album songs about Jane, mm. uh, from 2002, three, four, five, you know, it was nonstop, like wow. one tour after another, it was just the album cycle that never ended one, you know, a good problem to have. We had hit single after hit single yeah, after hit single. I was going to say, I'm still hearing the songs on the radio. So it's, and it, and it still reminds you of really special moments in your life. So I think your songs are still making an impact even today. That That is amazing. And, and having a book out and talking about this stuff, I have people reach out to me, you know, and, and having been in the, in the, in that bubble and then away from it for a long time. It's so amazing to hear people tell me that, you know, it's like this, this album or this song was really meaningful to me when I was eight years old, you know, and it's 20 years later now. And, and that always kind of fills me up and makes me realize that it was, uh, even though for me it ended in, in a slightly tragic way, um, it, it, was, it wasn't all for naught. You know, it was, some, it was, it was a, a worthy venture that uh, I look back on with gratitude now. Uh, but at the time, you know, to answer your question, it was it was a lot. And we all dealt with the stress of it in, in our own ways. 
Um, I, of course, dealt with it probably the least well. It was uh, I, over the course of a few years there, I had uh, a breakdown, which was not something that happened overnight. It was something that happened over a long period of time. Um, and it was a physical breakdown as well as, as I understand it now, a, a emotional and psychological breakdown as well. Um, so obviously I didn't, I didn't deal with it as well as I could. Um, I did the best I could at, at the time, knowing what I knew then and with the, the coping skills that I had. But I think that uh, being in the middle of that, that level of demand on you for that extended a period of time, it would be taxing on anyone. It's, it's just an inherently sort of unbalanced lifestyle. What do you think is like, what are the reasons that make it imbalanced? Like, I, I think it's something that I think about is this was what three to four years of touring for the album. So during that time, what are some of the challenges that the, the band may have faced that could have contributed to some of the mental health struggles? Well, there were kind of two different phases in terms of what the demands were. Uh, for the first two years in 02 and 03, uh, we played over 500 shows just in those two years. Uh, and that was, you know, on the way up. That was before we were a headlining act. You know, we were dri driving ourselves around the country in a passenger van uh, with all of our gear and a U-Haul behind us. And, you know, the, the 500 shows was not, it doesn't even really do it justice in terms of how much was on our plate because there was all of the promotional stuff as well, you know, doing uh, radio station appearances and record store, in-store appearances when that was still a thing. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, and photo shoots and video shoots and meet and greets and, and then, you know, the hours of, of travel. And uh, so it really was, it was exhilarating. It was exciting. It was what we wanted to be doing, but it was also exhausting. And, you know, just when you think, okay, maybe we'll have a little bit of a reprieve. Oh, we got another tour and we have to go right into the next tour. Um, and it just wouldn't, it wouldn't end. And so that was one, one aspect of what was uh, stressful was that on the way up the, the mountain, was just, you know, saying yes to everything and rolling from one tour into the next and literally just like sometimes rolling out of, uh, you know, the the row in the van, brushing your teeth with a water bottle in, in the parking lot of some radio station and pulling out your acoustic equipment and going and doing a performance and then going back in trying to catch some more Z's before you go to sound check for the show that night. You know, just a really crazy existence. Um, but then there was round two. Once once we had kind of made a name for ourselves and uh, and we were reaching the top of the mountain where we had the tour bus and we had a hit single and a, and a gold record. Now it was an international affair, you know, and it was jet set and it was um, longer hours of travel sometimes. And, uh, you know, later nights, you know, the, the shows as a headliner are longer and they're later in the night and you're up until uh, four in the morning, just kind of riding the wave of that adrenaline uh, and then having to sometimes wake up early in the morning and do something early in the morning or other times just a lot of the days sleeping into the afternoon and rolling out of your bunk and going to sound check. Um, and then, and then more downtime when you're playing an arena, 
sometimes you're just sitting in a locker room for hours killing time. And then all of a sudden you have to get up and perform as your most dynamic self in front of 20,000 people. Um, or, or you're, you're having to do interviews all day, uh, it, it, you know, in a dressing room and the locker room and then, and then, uh, have to kind of like still maintain that level of energy until after the show. And then all you want to do is kind of blow off some steam because it's hard to come down from all that. So it's slightly different level of stimuli or, or, for, or, you know, context for it. Um, but, but equally stressful. And for me, it was, it was kind of the intersection of, cause I was somebody who put a lot of pressure on myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was that internal pressure that came from perfectionism, um, performance anxiety, imposter syndrome, um, <laughs> you know, because I was a self-taught drummer. I wasn't like a guy who had gone to Juilliard and, and learned how to play with proper technique or anything. I was a, I was a garage rocker, you know? And, and so mm-hmm. going out there, it was fine when we were playing with other garage bands, but now you're playing with big pop acts and you have other musicians who are at the top of the field. And so inherently I felt like maybe I didn't belong there and I was going to be found out or not, not going to be able to, to hack it. Mm-hmm. And that can be a bit of a sort of uh, self-fulfilling prophecy when you ruminate on those negative outcomes a lot. So one of the things we've discussed on the show before with other musicians is like the expectation versus lifestyle of the professional musician, especially very successful musicians, uh, the rock, the rock star lifestyle. Sure. So did you find like when, during that period of time that, you know, there was there like pressure from others to live that lifestyle and be more of that kind of a uh, music idol? Or is, do you find that just the mere existence of the schedule and touring drives people into that lifestyle? Do you think it's like, how would you, uh, just, you know, put your experience into those terms. Well, it's interesting because it does creep up on you a little bit. It's, it's insidious um, because I grew up in the, in the 1980s watching um, MTV and Headbangers Ball and all my favorite hair bands where mm-hmm. the image they projected was this lifestyle of total debauchery and it's just, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Um and I was both excited by that prospect, but a little intimidated by it at the same time. My nature, I'm kind of an introvert by nature. And uh, I was, I'm, I'm a homebody. I'm not really somebody who was out there partying hard. Uh, quite the contrary, actually, as a teenager, I, I didn't drink at all. And uh, I was late to the game in that regard. Um, so the first time we went on the road in 1997, it was a slightly different world. And I was actually surprised that it wasn't as crazy as I imagined it to be. Okay. Um, and even in 2002, when we were uh, touring as Maroon 5, um, I was kind of impressed by some of the bigger acts that we opened for, the, the Sheryl Crows and the Matchbox 20s and these kind of established acts that were that playing the arenas that we were uh, opening them in, opening for them in. Um, and what was impressive to me was that they, you know, they had been around the block and it was clear to me that they were there because they had a work ethic, you know, and backstage, a lot of times it was, it was babies and strollers and nannies more than it was fishbowls of cocaine and Jack Daniels, right? <laughs> so it was a slightly different thing than I, I had the sort of mental image of, but at the same time, I will say that, um, you know, the long hours, the level of stress that you're under um, the need to sort of blow off some steam, 
and the extent to which you are enabled in certain ways because the lifestyle does allow it more than, you know, you can't really walk into a lot of jobs being extremely hungover or drunk. Whereas if you're a little tipsy and you walk on stage, nobody's really complaining that much unless you're really messing up. Right. So, so there is this sort of insidious nature where it's, it seems like, well, you know, I'm a little, I wound up a little tight. Let's just have a, a shot before we go on stage or, you know, we're, we're the adrenaline's still going and we have a day off tomorrow. Like, let's just tie one on and blow off some steam and, have a party uh, on a night that you wouldn't normally if you had a normal job. Um, so it, it was a weird combination of both of those factors. And I think it did become, even though it felt like we were, we were relatively mild in our party life, that you fast forward a couple of years and your life does look a little bit different than it did when you started. So Ryan, I know when it comes to, you know, I work with, I counsel a lot of athletes and we primarily work with nutrition and eating enough for their sport. And then when things get stressful, we'll talk coping strategies that they're working on with a mental health professional. So for you guys during that time, were there any strategies that anyone was talking about? Like what did those look like if it's appropriate to talk about, but also just what did you lean on to, to get that support that you needed to keep going? Well, you have to remember this was 20 years ago, which, you know, it doesn't sound like that long ago. But if you think about it in terms of how much the world has changed in that time and you, you, you open up uh, social media now and you see people talking about mental health right. and about wellness and about, you know, you know, finding your best life and, and how to uh, giving you tools of how to do that and, and encouraging therapy and things that are helpful in that regard. Meditation. Uh, th those were not conversations that were happening in 2002, 3, 4, at, at least not in the circles that I was in. Um, it, you know, there was, we had, you know, there were guys in the band that were into meditation and into um, a certain level of wellness. Um, however, we were also guys, you know, in our early to mid 20s um, and just kind of wanting to have an extended college life, I think. There, we weren't grown-ups yet. You know, we were immature, very mature in some ways, and I think precocious in terms of our artistry. Uh, and we took our, our craft seriously, and we took our performance seriously, but at the same time, immature in other ways. Um, and we, we were communicative uh, beyond a lot of bands in terms of how we were supportive of one another, but also still uh, boys, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And with all of the hang-ups that you imagine in terms of the macho mentality or, or not allowing yourself to be vulnerable in certain contexts. And so I think that um, to answer your question, there weren't a whole lot of coping skills that were healthy ones. Um, when I look back, I think, you know, the instructions we were given to go out into the world and conquer it were, you know, present yourself well on stage, put on a good show, um, schmooze with the fans in the fan club and, and uh, be charming in your interviews and essentially, they gave us some media training, you know, how to what to talk about, what not to talk about when there's a camera in your face. Right. Um, and that was helpful in terms of how to create a brand. But it, I, I look back on it, it's like, well, it would have been equally, if not more helpful for someone to sit us down and talk to us about here are the stresses and strains that are going to arise in this lifestyle. Um, everyone hits the wall at a certain point. How do you avoid burnout? How do you avoid breaking down? mentally, physically, um, 
and what are some tools that could be helpful and how do you support one another in the process of this crazy venture that you're all going on together. Um, even, even like family therapy, I think would have been helpful for us because it's just you and your crew, you know, out there long days, long days, long weeks, long months on a tour. Uh, and it turns into a few years of your life and you need to lean on one another and you need to be able to feel like you have an outlet. So for us, you know, we had fun together and we tried to be there for each other, but um, I certainly felt like I bottled a lot of things up. You know, I, I didn't express things that were going on for me. Uh, and there was that tendency to just kind of, as I said, blow off steam. It's like, I'm feeling stressed out. Let's go have some beers um, or for the pot smokers, you know, do their thing. Um, and there wasn't a whole lot of thought about what was the healthiest approach to do that. Right. And I feel I feel like in your 20s, right, when all this is starting up, it's a really exciting time. You know, you don't want to slow down yet. You're scared that if you slow down, I don't know, the next band is going to come through and, and take the spot. So there's just so many, I feel like mental stressors, too, that keep someone from wanting to slow down and, and give themselves what they need during that time. Yeah, we had gotten a lot of instruction and advice, good advice from a from a business standpoint to say yes to everything on your first album. And uh, if you're having success, ride that as far as you can, because that's going to establish your career. And if you say yes to all those, those offers and you go out there and you give it your, your all, now you've created relationships and you've built a fan base. And when you come back around on your second and third album, all those people are gonna be there waiting for you to support you. But if you say no and you don't do that extra tour or that extra gig or that extra uh, you know, TV appearance or whatever is being offered you, now you've burned a bridge or you've lost an opportunity and they're not going to ask again. So it was good advice from that standpoint in terms of you know, building a brand and building uh, a, a career that's sustainable. But it's terrible advice from a wellness standpoint, you know, because I would <laughs> tell my clients the opposite now. It's like, uh, prioritize, figure out what's really important and what's not as important. Um, and, and creating balance in your life is as is equally essential to the sustainability of your life and career as is, you know, doing everything you can to build your, your business. So there wasn't any of that thought. I mean, I remember saying to our manager several times, like, I'm really worn down. I, I need a break. Um, physically, my arm was hurting. Uh, just my whole constitution was feeling really exhausted. And it was like, well, you know, it's all going to pay off. Trust me, it's all going to pay off. Like, like we just now we got to go to Asia. Now we got to go to Australia. Now we got to promote the next single and do another video and uh, just stick with it. It's only going to be another year or two, you know? <laughs> oh, well, that's interesting too, because that's one of the things that when you watch biopics and you talk to other musicians and in interviews, it seems like in, in most, of these, most of your situations with the success you have, um, I mean, maybe like how much control do you have in your career at that phase? Because yeah, you don't really know the business yet. So you'll still try, as you said, say yes and try, you know, and follow along. But sometimes you may want to do something differently. And in some places, sometimes you want to have time off or you know, a little bit of a break. But it sounds like 
either the train is like just going so fast you have to keep up on it or um you know you're not the conductor or like um do you guys find that it's difficult to handle that situation when you give up control to others well it definitely does become a train that 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 gets away from you at a certain point you know when we were just playing around town in LA growing up and building a name locally uh we had a lot of control and I, in particular, being the sort of type A control freak in the band and the oldest member and the guy with the car when we started the band, <laughs> <laughs> I was the one that was uh, booking the gigs and, and doing the mailing list and, uh, you know, trying to uh, be on top of everything. And so that felt like uh, a certain level of control over the outcome of things. Um, once you have a team in place and you have a product out there to promote, it's not just you guys anymore. And it's not even just your manager. It's, it's the record label and it's the promotional team. And it's, you know, it's, it's at a certain point it's you know, it's golden voice or live nation or, you know, one of those right. huge corporations who would sue you if you are in breach of contract or if you cancel a tour or something. So there's there's a there's a, a train that gets going where yeah you don't really have a whole lot of say anymore or feeling of control and uh, that was probably looking back on it equally difficult for me being that control freak being somebody who was kind of obsessive compulsive and that was one of my coping mechanisms feeling like that control was slipping from my grasp more and more and it was like I just had to show up and try to get through it uh, but there was really no way for me to, you know, hold up my hands and say, no, I can't do it. Uh, so it was, it was, again, it wasn't something that happened in one night. It wasn't happen. It didn't happen in one, on one tour. It was something that I felt it a little bit. And then I thought maybe we would have a break and I'd be able to recuperate enough uh, to get through the next tour. And then that break would evaporate because now we had more stuff on the calendar um, and so it's a little bit more worn down and a little bit more worn down um, until I really did hit a wall at a certain point where I felt like I'm really going down hard. One of the aspects of mental stress that occurs in these situations is the role of physical pain, physical stress affecting that. And sometimes in the, in the music world, that gets neglected all the time. The physical part is like, you know, this is how I was trained. This is what you got to do. So what, so I know you talk about this in your, in your uh, memoir, Hard to Breathe, um, a little bit. So just kind of, if you can talk about the physical part of drumming professionally and what, and the breakdown that you have physically that, had, that led you to having to retire from Room 5. Well, you know, I, I actually was an athlete before I was a musician. As a kid, I played a lot of baseball and I was a good pitcher. Uh, and I had arm problems in high school. That was... A, eventually why I ended up stopping playing baseball because I just had injuries to my pitching arm that just kept recurring. Um, but I also had a lot of coaches who would tell me to, you know, just push through and, and play through the pain and got sure. a lot of bad advice in that regard and that sort of um, tough it out mentality, which is necessary in some sports more than others. Um, it was terrible advice, I think, as a pitcher. Um, we were, and, were you a good pitcher? Yeah, yeah, I was actually, and I, I'm not just saying that. <laughs> no, I, was, I mean, a lot of kids who are young who are good pitchers get overused so badly that's how they break down. 
Yeah, well, when I was 12 years old, I was, you know, I was the the best pitcher in my little league and we won the championship and went on to the regionals and everything. And I pitched in all-star tournaments and I was on the varsity team pitching when I was a freshman uh, at the end of that year. Um, and so there was a lot of expectation. And yeah, I mean, every coach I had, it was like, OK, you're our guy. You're, you're the guy we're going to ride to the championship. Um, and I was game for it. And I thought that was my that was my job until my body started telling me otherwise, you know, I started having, um, you know, uh, elbow pain and then shoulder pain and kind of chronic tendonitis in my rotator cuff. And that was how it showed up originally on tour as a drummer. Strangely enough, those injuries for a long time didn't bother me as a drummer. Uh, but then about a year and a half, two years into touring on songs about Jane, I started having pain in my right shoulder again. And, it, you know, at the time I thought, oh, no, it's the old pitching injury. In retrospect, I can see that it was partly that, but it was also the amount of strain I was under and having to um, try to perform when exhausted uh, mentally and physically. Um, and that perfectionistic attitude, trying to control things that I couldn't and try harder and push through it and be my best for every every stroke of every song um, of every set. And, and over time, it became, you know, bearing down more and more and causing more stress on my joints. Uh, my nervous system was fatiguing and I started, I, I developed a dystonia. I had a, a movement disorder. I had, my hands started shaking. I had difficulty coordinating things that used to be easier. Um, I, it was, uh, you know, I look at it now and this was never a diagnosis I received in those days. I got the, the diagnosis of the, the joint inflammation and the and something called thoracic outlet syndrome. Um, mm -hmm. But in retrospect, I, I see it equally, if not more, uh, like focal dystonia or musician's dystonia, where my body was just like, you know, you're killing yourself. And if you're not going to stop, we're going to make you stop. You know, that was what my nervous system was essentially telling me. So, um, yeah, but there was that that kind of toxic stew of that that athlete mentality of try harder and push through it. Um, the kind of like denial that goes into that mentality of just pretending like I'm not experiencing what I'm experiencing. Um, and, and just, you know, um, being in the middle of it and, and, you know, it was kind of a downward spiral too, because once you have the physical symptoms and, and the, the inability to do the things you you're supposed to be doing well, um, it, it confirms that imposter syndrome, you know? And yeah. it kind of like feeds on itself. And now you're you're ruminating on the negative outcomes, which then become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it just continues to kind of go downward. So, Ryan, when did you reach your breaking point and what did that look like? Like, how did you recognize this is where I'm at right now? I need to slow down. Maybe I need to stop. What did that time period look like for you? Well, uh, you know, there were those a few of those conversations that I, I don't remember saying it to anyone in the band. It was kind of the elephant in the room with the band because they were noticing that things, something wasn't right. Right. They were noticing that my playing was starting to suffer, that I would just drop a beat every now and then, or that my playing was kind of sloppier or, or, or just dragging. And they would bring it up to me out of concern as much as anything uh, but being a 25 year old kid and, and macho, I, I would get kind of defensive, you know, as opposed to saying, you know, I'm really struggling guys. I would be like, no, 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 it's, it's fine. It was just, uh, 
it was just a one-time thing. It'll be better tomorrow night. Yeah. Um, and, but I do remember saying to our manager, you know, a few times, I really feel like I'm getting exhausted and I need a break. But it was one of those moments, I think it was in 2004, middle of 2004, uh, after about two and a half years of touring. Um, and we were in Europe doing European tour. And it was one of those moments where I was looking forward to like September as a month that we were going to have off. After all of our hard work, we were going to be able to go home and recuperate and have just a little bit of time to like rejuvenate and kind of start over. Um, and then we were in the van on the way to the airport and our tour manager hands us the new itinerary. And I look at September, of course, all excited and it's gone. You know, there's, there's a, there's a week in Australia, there's a week for a, a video shoot and there's a week of promo in London and, you know, and I just, I remember really, really hitting the wall at that point, just whatever, I, you know, energy stories I still had inside of me that I was just running on fumes. Uh, they just kind of went out the window in that moment and I felt really defeated. And so I have this, this memory of being in the international terminal of the airport in Milan and just kind of sitting uh, hunched over in the middle of the, of the airport with a backpack on with all of my worldly possessions, and, you know, my toiletry kit and everything uh, and just head down kind of in the fetal position, really just with people walking all around me and just like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. So that to me is like the image I go back to of feeling really, really beaten down. And believe it or not, I did push through a little bit after that. You know, we, we did go to Australia and I remember that being another <laughs> new low uh, where being on stage, it felt like that, just like so depleted, so jet lagged um, and having to push through it and play through a set and just feeling like my, my body had become this foreign instrument that I couldn't even control anymore. Um, and so it was a new level of exhaustion that I hadn't experienced. And, and so shortly thereafter, somewhere around the end of 2004 or five, I did go home and, and uh, uh, start, you know, I went to every kind of doctor you can possibly go to, to see what was wrong with me. And the band was really supportive. They, I have to give them a lot of credit. You know, we were brothers for over a decade at that point. Uh, and we had built this thing to this place where we're playing all over the world. Um, and they, they said, you know, go home figure out what's wrong and fix it. We'll be here when you get back. And that was helpful to me at the time, but it was also just demoralizing to go back to, uh, at the time I'd been living on the road for three years, I, going back to a one bedroom apartment uh, and watching my band from afar, you know, still playing these epic shows around the world. And I'm sitting in doctor's offices and physical therapy rooms and, uh, and just not knowing what was wrong with me. I mean, I had you know, people telling me, you know, you have, you have tendonitis and things like that, but it didn't seem to capture the whole picture. It didn't seem right. like anyone was really giving me an answer to what was at the core of what was going on. And so, uh, I was just feeling more and more demoralized at that point. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Founded in 1957, School Health Corporation has been dedicated to helping school-based health professionals keep their students healthy for athletic performance. As a national full-service provider of health supplies and services, School Health's comprehensive offerings include hydration supplies to prevent heat illnesses, 
sports medicine, recovery and rehabilitation equipment, and school safety infographics for our athletes and the arts community. School Health provides more than just products and resources for performing artists and musicians. They also offer training, advisory services, and exceptional customer care for those supporting performers on school campuses. For more information, please visit www.schoolhealth.com. And now back to our show. Did you feel like you had any one say, Ryan, you need help? Like, was family there? You know, did you have anyone around you that you could turn to that kind of told you what that whole picture looked like? I wonder, you know, even with kids these days or young artists, some of them are taking the lead to to take a break and then get back to their craft, whether it's music, sports, and it feels like they have more support these days or it just mm-hmm. or maybe it's just put out on social media and we're hearing about it on Instagram and and Twitter, whatever, or X. And so I just wonder, you know, what you know, who brought that to light for you? You know, when you were comparing Ryan, I don't know, during the first two to three years and then Ryan the third and fourth year, like what did that look like for you? Because I'm sure there was a lot, there were, there were and are a lot of people that struggle with this. And I, I wish they had that support to see the whole picture. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was fortunate, you know, I, I, I have a great family and they were definitely very supportive and always were and continue to be. Um, I had a girlfriend at home who was also really in my corner and trying to help me with whatever I needed. And, and like I said, the band were definitely um, encouraging and supportive. Um, but I just, I, I, I did feel, and I'll be honest, I did feel let down by uh, the medical establishment at that point in terms of what it could offer me. And um, because I felt like everything was so specialized and there was, if you had pain in your shoulder, there was an orthopedist to go to and he would tell you, you know, here I can see inflammation on the MRI. I can give you a cortisone shot. Here's some anti-inflammatories and, and do some physical therapy. Um, or even, you know, I have a little crack in my labrum in my shoulder, which probably went back to my pitching days. And they said, well, you know, we could operate on it, but it's probably not going to be helpful. And so there, there was that. And, but it was like very isolated to that joint. Right. And then I would go to a neurologist, you know, and they would, they would do a, a nerve conduction study and see, okay, there's slowing of the nerves and diagnose me with, with something like um, thoracic outlet syndrome or carpal tunnel syndrome or you know, and okay, that's helpful. And that's specific to this neurological issue that's going on. It's very specific. Uh, and then I went to a psychiatrist, you know, and they tried to diagnose me with a million things because I was out of my mind at that point, depressed and, and feeling really uh, anxious and, and starting to drink more as a, as a coping mechanism. And so presenting with all of these things that I was misdiagnosed with at the time as, you know, bipolar or uh, you know, other, other, you know, mood disorders or whatever. And that didn't feel accurate to me. And it was just isolated to this. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with your mind? And what's a pill that I can give you to help you with that? What really seemed to be lacking t- to me was a, a holistic approach, you know, something that saw the integration of mind and body and spirit. Um, and 
so I, I did feel like there was no one who was at the center of the whole thing um, able to give me how to put all those pieces together right. and how to see what wellness is going to look like. Um, and I, I, granted, at that point, having been that beaten down for that long, it was probably a little late in the game mm-hmm. to try to turn it around. Mm-hmm. Because I really, I look at it now, and I had a hard time calling it this for a long time. But it was a, it was a trauma that happened to me. You know, it was a slow-moving trauma. Um, and the reason why I had a hard time calling it that is because I reserved that word for you know people that ha- have lived through war or uh, a life and death situation or you know childhood abuse, those kind of types of things. So what you know, me being a, a, a rock star on the road, how could you call that trauma? But it was a situation in which um, there was no reprieve from a high level of stress on my mind, body, and spirit for a long period of time, pat, way past the point of what was what would, would be considered healthy or balanced, and way past the point uh, of where I was trying to like put my hand up and feeling like I'm drowning, to where I'm literally just not able to continue. So I think a lot of damage had been done at that point, and and. So to back up the tracks and try to to heal a joint at that point was like almost futile with in comparison to everything else that was going on. And I think that um, it would have been helpful to receive a diagnosis like dystonia or um, uh, some kind of movement disorder or or something that was just, um, you know, a, an integration of, of mind, body and spirit. Uh, I, I had to come to that on my own terms in my own time when I was in my own recovery from alcoholism and anxiety disorder later, years later. Did alcoholism come as a result of where you were at the end of that, I guess, that run? Or um, was that something that happened when you left Maroon 5? Like. It, it ramped up um, in, in those in that last year I was in the band when I was no longer playing. Yeah. Um, but I was still a member of the band and trying to be connected to what was going on. Right. And and really, you know, feeling really defeated and beating myself up a lot and feeling like a failure. Um, you know, the drink, which had been uh, a way to facilitate good times, became all of a sudden a way to cope with pain um, or a way to check out or avoid feelings and uh, so that's when it became more of a problem. And then when I did officially leave the band and I had to learn somehow how to move on with my life, um, then it really became a lifestyle, you know, because I didn't have any responsibility in my life at that point. Um, and any ways in which I was trying to look at myself as uh, you know, an athlete trying to return from an injury was out the window. And now I didn't have any reason to really care for my body. And and it was uh, you know, just kind of like, I look at it kind of as a, um, I was never actively suicidal, but it was kind of a passive suicidality mm-hmm. where I obviously didn't care enough for myself or I was um, angry enough at myself where I was punishing myself with this, this toxic lifestyle, which eventually would kill me if I continued the way that I was going. Um, but I went through all of the the sort of the cycles of addiction that people go through. Um, you know, it was, it got Real bad there for a year or two after I left the band. And then I went into what I refer to in my book, Harder to Breathe, as uh, the illusion of control. There's a whole chapter called The Illusion of Control because it was that period of, of alcoholism where it's like, oh, I just need to learn how to 
how to uh, have some moderation, you know, uh, if I don't drink on the, uh, during the week and I only drink on the weekends, or if I mm-hmm. wait, wait until five o'clock to have my first beer or I stick only stick to beer and wine and not hard liquor, then I have <laughs> control over this thing. Right. Right. Which was just a fantasy. It was just a, a rationalization uh, or an illusion. Um, so I went through that phase and then of course it got worse again and to the point where, um, I had no illusions anymore. I had to face the reality that it was not only not serving me, but had become the problem itself. Um, and once I was finally able to recognize that was when I was able to reach a level of, of acceptance that allowed me to start uh, the journey of recovery. So what is it like for uh, a person like yourself who is, a, you know, part of your identity is the founding drummer of a successful band and then you are no longer part of that band anymore. And then you go through the, you know, go through these addiction problems and mental health struggles. Um, so then how do you make the transition to a career that you're doing now where you're able to help others? Um, you're writing your book, you're, you know, you're, you know, seeing uh, patients as a, as a uh, clients, as a, a counselor. Um, talk to us about like, how do you get, make that transition? Because, just to be able to function is a lot of times a big success for people in that situation. But for you to be able to turn it around and become the person that you probably wish you had back in 2002 or three, um, that's pretty remarkable. So, but how do you, yes. How's that turning point occur for you? Well, it's, it's amazing. You know, I, I could not have foreseen that I would be doing some of the things that I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. Uh, if you asked me 10 years ago, um, you know, it took me about 10 years after I left the band to go through the whole cycle of alcoholism. And uh, what I really I really look at it as, as uh, you know, the stages of grief that I went through, you know, dealing with the loss of that identity. Sure. Um, more more so than the loss of the career and all the, the fame and glory and, and riches of of being a, a pop star. It was really a loss of self, you know, right. something that was so definitive in terms of my self-image, my self-worth. So, I, you know, everything had really, I didn't know who I was, you know, anymore after that. And so when I really finally kind of hit a bottom and, and decided that I life was worth living still and I wanted to start walking into recovery um, hat in hand, you know, with humility and acceptance, um, I had no visions of what that was going to lead me to. I just knew that I needed to give life another shot. Um, but pretty early on, I was kind of infected with this, this sense of how fulfilling being of service can be. And it was, it was just, you know, I was at the Betty Ford Center here in Southern California um, and it started out, you know, with me being full of anxiety and just detoxing from alcohol and, and struggling to like two weeks in being the guy who was helping people to their room that were still shaking like a leaf and giving them encouraging words and, and acclimating them to the process and starting to share with them some of the things I'd learned in two weeks of recovery. Mm. And that was a really powerful feeling that I had something to offer another human being in a helpful way, which was something I had been lacking for a long time. And really what I'd been lacking more than anything was the sense of connection, right? Because I had sure. I'd had this really strong connection in being a member of, of a band and a team and a a unit that was that was as much a spiritual connection as anything. We were we were inspired creative partners that worked together to, uh, toward a common goal for uh, you know over a decade, 
And then I spent a decade without anything like that in my life and feeling really isolated and really disconnected from the things that filled me up. So now I'm feeling all this connection in being inspired by others that are a little bit ahead of me in the process of recovery and being able to, to offer that to the people who were a little bit behind me. And so I just kind of followed that feeling that which was so fulfilling uh, in everything that I was doing. Once I was about six months sober and I had completed the inpatient and the outpatient programs, I started volunteering at the outpatient clinic. Uh, for two years, I volunteered, you know, just doing peer support and, and running co-leading groups. Um, and what was amazing about that, I mean, it was first and foremost a way to work on my own recovery because I was being of service and that's a big part of the 12 steps and all that. Um, but also it was building up my self-esteem again. It was giving me the confidence that had been so depleted by everything I'd gone through. I was getting a lot of positive feedback that I had other talents than just being the drummer in Maroon 5, that just by showing up and sharing what I was gaining in my recovery, that I actually had something to offer again. Um, and I was rediscovering or discovering for the first time other passions. And that led to me having this newfound um, passion for psychology and mental health, which led me back to school to get a master's degree in clinical psychology. Uh, which led me to become a therapist. I'm now an associate marriage and family therapist. And in the course of doing all that, I also realized that this tragic story that I'd been telling myself for so long about how my first love and my first passion had ended in such a tragic way now had a, a happy ending. And mm -hmm. that by mm -hmm. telling that story, I could actually offer some hope to people that are struggling with some of the things that I was struggling with. And so I had all these new inspirations in life that led to what felt like a new mission and purpose uh, in giving back and being of service in telling my story in a way that could be um, hopeful and inspirational to people. So I started writing down, uh, you know, all of my war stories, good and bad, all of the fun times and the hard times and everything that led to where I was at that point in my life. And it became this book, Harder to Breathe which is to me kind of my life's work to the, up until this point. It's the thing I'm most proud of. And that says, says a lot. You know, I spent a decade building a band that recorded an album that's sold 20 million copies and won two Grammy awards. And right. those are, those are accomplishments that I'm very proud of, but you know, the book and what I'm doing now has this added element of, um, you know, doing something altruistic, doing something that can be helpful to people and I recommend that to anyone if you're looking for purpose, you know, just just being of service. And it doesn't have to be in big ways that I'm describing. It can be as simple as being helpful to a friend or a family member or just, you know, being a little bit less uh, selfish and a little bit more selfless um, and just showing up. I mean, if you're struggling with things, it, what was amazing to me is that even in sharing what I was struggling with, even in just talking about how much anxiety I'm experiencing right now, somebody else hearing that is 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 gaining something from it right because they don't feel alone someone else in the group is is realizing oh so there's a, here's another guy that's going through what i'm going through and he seems like he's okay he's going to get through this so maybe i can get through it too so service doesn't always have to be this amazing altruistic thing it can just be showing up and being yourself and so i kind of just i i've rediscovered um passion and purpose in my life in those things and i continue to just kind of follow that feeling of fulfillment towards whatever is going to be the next thing that will offer that to me. Amazing.
Yeah. Very cool. I mean, I just feel like what you did by walking away was very hard, but also very powerful looking back and seeing what you've achieved ever since then. Can you tell us a little bit more about your book? Yeah, harder to breathe. It's, you know, like I said, it's it's a book that took 40 years of my life to write, really, uh, because it was everything that uh, I lived through that went into eventually writing that book. Um, it's very raw and honest. Uh, I had one goal above everything else was to be as vulnerable and honest as I could be, because what was the point of, you know, glossing over things or writing a book that didn't really go there? Because mm -hmm. who would I be helping if I didn't really kind of lay it all out there? Um, and, it, you know, I think it's a, it, it kind of charts my journey from before the band and some of the things that I wasn't aware were issues for me. Um, the anxieties and the perfectionism and the obsessive compulsiveness and uh, things that, that at, at, at certain times in my life were benefits. You know, I mean, I think being hardworking and, and striving for perfection was part of the early success of the band, you know, being that guy who was uh, trying to be the organizer of things. Uh, but looking back and having the perspective of not just somebody who lived through everything I did and has lived to tell the tale, but also as a professional now, somebody who has an education on this stuff, I can talk about it with a little bit more wisdom, uh, maybe at this point in my life. But it's not a, it's not a, uh, a book that's written for people uh, that are in grad school. You know, I had to stop myself from doing that and, and making it into a book that's written in psychobabble. Uh, it's really just a, it's, it's a narrative. It's written like a novel and it's really, um, uh, it's fun. Hopefully it's inspiring in the early years of the band. Uh, it's, it's heartbreaking and it's kind of a roller coaster in terms of the emotional ride and the depths it goes to, but ultimately it's hopeful. And it, and it's, uh, it's, it's purpose is to, to give people, uh, just a sense in the last, you know, third of the book of what recovery looks like and what I've learned in in the journey that's led me to a whole new life that's been so fulfilling. So, with your new life as a psychotherapist and and uh, life coach, uh, well, I'll put your I want you to wear that hat for a second here, and I want to talk mm -hmm. a little bit about like the work you're doing now, uh, especially with life coaching for creatives. One of the things we've talked about before in this show and we talk a lot about in the uh, Performing Arts Medicine organizations is about resiliency uh, in dancers and performers and musicians um, and how we help develop that. Um, a lot of people talk today about how today's generation just doesn't know how to handle conflict and doesn't um, because of social media and all these things. So um, I'm sure you come across this with other, other creatives you uh, deal with. So what do you think are like the best best advice for people who are um, dealing with that kind of problem? How does one develop that resiliency to continue on in this field? Because as we already discussed in your career, you know, you could have easily hung it up when you're age 20 after that first failure. Well, I think the best way to first answer that question is to look back. You know, a question I get asked a lot is like, if you could do something differently, knowing what you know now uh, and go back and relive all of that, what would you do? Um, given, given the challenges that I had, which are similar to a lot of the challenges that young people are experiencing these days. Um, and the answer I would give is that, uh, you know, I think that, um, I, I was, I, I, I suffered from the defensiveness of youth that many people do. I think as a young person, uh, in particular as a teenager, but in your twenties as well, um, things that are challenging or foreign or new. Um, or criticism 
can feel very harsh and can feel like a threat to your sense of self. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, if that's true, then I, maybe I'm not good enough. You know, right. and that's where that imposter syndrome comes from. Um, and the perfectionism, I have to be so good. Otherwise, I'm not good enough. Right. And what, what, what happens and what happened for me is this, this defensiveness where you end up rejecting things that are actually going to be helpful um, or seeing things that are actually opportunities for growth as threats. So, you know, I, the, the thing, the change I would like to see in my younger self most is more of an openness to, to change and growth, a more of a mindset of growth, more of an openness to the, to the possibilities that come from being challenged. Uh, because when you see challenges rather than threats, now you have the possibility of leading to something positive as opposed to when something is a threat, you're, you're either going to just crumble or run away right. and avoid it, right? It's a stressor, right. Right. The reality is now, I mean, at this point in my life, I look at things that are give me anxiety, things that are challenging or foreign to me as exciting because here's another frontier for me. Here's something that I haven't conquered yet. And it's like, oh, maybe that's where I need to be. Because if it's something that feels very comfortable, uh, that's something I've already done. That's something I've grown accustomed to or gained confidence in. But if this thing makes me uncomfortable, um, there's something that I can walk into and learn something from. So the mindset of growth, you know, having that that ability to be uh, to look at things with the beginner's mind, you know, it's, we're all beginners until we learn. Right. And so when when confronted with new information, uh, looking at ways to integrate it, integrate it into what we already know and expand on our horizons, see opportunities rather than threats. Do you feel like it's possible for young artists um, and even those who are older, but they're just getting started in music or just their their successful career in music? Do you think it's possible to set boundaries like is that a possible thing for, for creative artists. Like I just think about some of the artists that have canceled tour dates since the pandemic. And I wonder, mm-hmm. can they like have a conversation and say, Hey, this is what needs to happen. And this is what's going to work for me. And if you can make this happen, then I'm going to continue forward with, I don't know, the tour or revisit this in a year. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I actually wrote an article in Variety Magazine about this um, because it is amazing to see how younger artists are starting to prioritize uh, wellness and mental health um, in ways that they not only didn't, but didn't have the ability to, didn't, you know, you would 20 years ago, you know, if somebody canceled a tour, you would assume one of two things. One, they were just being a diva. Uh, or they had a drug problem, right? Right. And they would use some catchphrase like, uh, you know, canceled tour due to exhaustion. Uh, And you'd think, oh, that's just a a label for something else, right? And so I think the answer is twofold. There's the individual and then there's the systemic issues uh, to see that if you actually have the option now to have those conversations and talk about, uh, b- building a, a more sustainable model for a career um, than just meeting, you know, the, the, the bottom line, this touring cycle. Um, I think that for the individual, you know, finding ways to cope and finding ways to, to set boundaries and, and build a more balanced lifestyle 
that's a challenge in this lifestyle. It's just an inherently unbalanced lifestyle, but there are things that you can do to do that individually. However, in order to really see the difference uh, really fleshed out, there does have to be those, uh, those systemic changes as well. You know, I talked about how it would have been helpful to have a team that was thinking about you know, having sustainability over a four-year album cycle. How are you gonna build in a therapeutic environment into that community? to make it uh, more, a more resilient um, touring entity. Um, those conversations are finally happening now. And so that's a wonderful thing to see. And I think that artists do have more room to set boundaries. Um, it's still difficult. I mean, you have to walk that line. It is a business. At the end of the day, you can't hold it against an industry for being an industry. It's a, at the end of the day, everyone that's in it is trying to have success and make money. And that's no different than any other industry. It's just that you have people who are creative people in the middle of this who do tend to have more sensitivities to these things than a lot of people because it's the same temperament, the same type of personality that drives creativity and expression that also can be, can be um, you know, ways in which people can be vulnerable to some of these things. And so you do have to have a sensitivity if you're managing some of these artists, if you're running a record label, if you're a promotional team to understand that these are not just human beings, but these are sensitive human beings. And what they have to offer is profound. It's a, you know, when they blossom into this, this beautiful flower that we all benefit from, um, it, it, it's, it's beautiful to see it. We all want to see it thrive and continue. And if we just put it under conditions where it's not getting sunlight and it's not getting the water and nourishment it needs, it's going to wilt at a certain point. And so having the, these conversations and systemically thinking about what we can do to be more um, sustainable, uh, but also giving individuals the capacity to build resilience, that those are both necessary ingredients. Do you feel like it's possible to have more individuals like you who's had this this experience in the past and, and being on a, in a band and um, a musician to be on those teams in the future? Like, is that something that's in a work in progress right now? Because I feel like even, I feel, I feel like with the young artists, if their parents are managing them and they're monitoring, like who's on this team, I wonder if there's like an organization that's, that's helping ensure that there is a mental health professional on staff when People are signing with these labels. Yeah, I think you are starting to see those types of things becoming available. You know, when I put my book out into the world, um, I, you know, I didn't have a mission specific to the, the music industry. Yeah. Um, you know, I was operating as somebody who was just trying to be helpful to people in a general way, but from the perspective of, of a mental health professional and advocate now. Um, but then I started getting people reaching out to me from the music world because of my background and because of um, where we are in the world and how things have changed in 20 years. And um, I got a call from um, a, a lady named Tamson Envelton in London, England, who uh, is the head of something called the Music Industry, the Music Industry Therapist Collective, the MITC, uh, which I had never heard of. And she just happened to have a book coming out. Um, called Touring and Mental Health, the, the music of the Touring Industry Manual. And I read this thing. I mean, I, well, I, I scanned it. It's, a, it's like an encyclopedia of everything that you can possibly imagine would come up for a touring musician. It's like 600 pages long. And I was like, oh, my God, I wish this thing had existed 20 years ago when I was going through all of this because it's like mm -hmm. a manual to instruct you on what, how to 
how to be prepared for that lifestyle, how to, how to deal with all the stressors that come up and finding ways to find balance in an unbalanced uh, context. And so, you know, I joined the, the MITC. I'm now one of the therapists and a group of therapists who were people who had worked in the music industry previously and left because of how toxic it was and became therapists uh, and now are working with creatives and people in the industry. And there are a few different entities like that that exist that I've learned about since that are uh, specific to either uh, creative people, people in the industry, or even specific to touring crew and production crew, which is a whole other um, you know, unique and specific subset of what we're talking about. I mean, they, they, they have all the work and all the stress without all the glory of being the famous rock star. And when one tour ends, they, you know, they go home and figure out how am I going to get my next paycheck? They got to find another tour. Right. So, you know, those, those are the people that I wish I had more respect for when I, when they were working for me 20 years ago, realizing just how difficult that life is. Um, so yes, there are people that are out there. Um, I think that I'm relatively unique and that I'm actually one of the people who was one of the artists. Um, and, and that, and that really did, um, lose a lot because of all of that. Um, and now has some expertise in this field. Um, there are a few of me out there, uh, but there's also just a lot of people that have a passion for this stuff and want to be involved in helping these people. And so you're seeing that more and more. And I think that, that, um, Hopefully, with, with, when people like me do the kind of advocacy that I'm doing, you'll start to see record labels and promotional teams saying, you know what, it actually is beneficial to our bottom line to build a sustainable model, to have right. touring crew and artists who are going to have long careers that are thriving and not just burn them out in one year. It's kind of like life after sport when they when there's all this education and there's like a curriculum before a college athlete is transitioning out of their sport and going into the real world. I feel like that needs to be done for musical artists uh, and for people that decide music may not be, let me take that back a little bit, but like may, cause I feel like music is always going to be in your life. Right. But maybe not being part of a band or being on that certain level um, is going to be the right fit for them and, and taking that next step. Yeah, there's so many parallels between the uh, the athletes and and the artists in in that regard. Uh, you know, even even if you are the most successful as you can possibly be in a sport, there's an end date, right? Yeah. And it's usually long before you wish you could continue. You know, um, I mean, to to spend your entire life dedicated to one craft. And for that to be your purpose in life, to be the thing that fills you up and, and feels like you know what you're doing when you're on the ball field or on the court or whatever it may be. And then all of a sudden that's gone. And what am I going to do with the, the rest of my life? Whether that be half of your life, three quarters of your life, or like for me, I, you know, I, I walked away from pitching when I was 15, you know, and that was my passion from age, you know, eight to 15. And then it was like, Thankfully, I had music to go into at that point in my life, but then I had to go through that again at 28 when I walked away from music. I think that that uh, having success can be a wonderful thing, but it can also be um, make that end date uh, even more painful. Um, realizing that uh, now um, a big part of my self-definition, my identity, uh, my my meaning and purpose is is gone. And who am I without that? So it's tough. 
Ryan, do you still incorporate music into your into your day? Are you still running? I do. It means something a little different than it did back in the day. Um, you know, music. It's interesting. Music is is such a a complicated relationship for me because it's 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 where my biggest passion was at a certain point in my life. It's where my biggest success was at a certain point in my life, but it's also where my trauma lies, right? <laughs> and so that's all there for me. And it's still part of the work that I do individually, personally, at this point in my life. I've overcome so much, but I still have those wounds. You know, I still have those things that um, I'll never, well, never say never. But when I sit at a drum set, um, it's a different experience now than it was 25 years ago, right? There was a freedom and there was a, uh, a sense that this is my, this is my escape. This is the place where I feel like I'm in flow and I'm, um, I'm in a Zen state of mind when I'm playing the drums. Um, and now it's all that baggage. And this is the place where I was injured. And this is the place where, um, you know, I, I, I dealt with that disappointment. So, so it's a complicated thing for me, but I, I try to find ways to tap into that old feeling in other ways. I do play more guitar now than I, than I do drums. I like to sing and I'm not a great singer, but you know, I, I find it fun just to, in the same way that like I go and I play softball on Sunday mornings with my dad. And it reminds me of being 12 years old uh, when he was my coach and we won the championship in little league. And it's just a way to tap into that, that uh, in, more innocent time when you just played for the fun of it and felt, you know, just, just the, the, a sense of who you are just from, from going through the motion of fielding a ground ball and throwing it or hitting a baseball, you know, and, and it's the same thing with music. As much as there is that, that, that injury and that baggage and that trauma, if I'm just jamming out, playing guitar and singing and not worrying about what it sounds like and just having fun with my, my brother who plays guitar and my nephew who plays the drums, um, then I'm tapping into that, that, that freedom, you know, and that expression that was so fun when I was 16 years old. Um, but it is, it is a challenge, you know, you have to, and I talk about this with my clients of, of all walks of life. It's like tapping into that inner child um, and who sometimes just wants something simple and something joyful yeah. that uh, it reminds you of a more innocent time. Beautiful. Well, Ryan, I really appreciate your time being with us. It was amazing to talk to you. It was an amazing story you taught, you shared with us and your life is an inspiration for musicians and creatives and people in general, uh, especially the last part about, I mean, actually getting a little misty eyed here, thinking about uh, playing baseball when I was growing up and hurting my shoulder and, and uh, suddenly I couldn't throw anymore. And I beat the coach during tryouts. And he almost threw the bat at me and that ended my career. So just thinking about wow. just the fun of playing sports and uh, getting back to our youth is really inspirational. So I just want to tell you, I really appreciate you being on the show. I really appreciate your story. I think people are going to be moved by it. I think your book is amazing. And I think it's going to be, uh, I think your purpose in life is helping so many people, even though your music did too. Um, I just want to thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for being here today. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate that. And uh, it sounds like we could do a whole other uh, interview about that story. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Throwing the bat and all that. <laughs> oh man, that's some trauma there too for myself. I'm still working through, I think. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's interesting. As a therapist, I'm intrigued. <laughs> and Ryan, lastly, where can people find your book, Harder to Breathe? a memoir of making Maroon 5, losing it all, and finding recovery. 
You can get it uh, on Amazon or anywhere you buy books, barnesandnoble.com. Uh, yeah, and my, my website, ryandusick.com, is a good place to access uh, all things all things Ryan Dusick. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. And that wraps up another episode. We'd like to thank our sponsor, School Health, again for supporting the show. And if you like what you hear, please click subscribe and leave a review. For Yasi Ansari, I'm Stephen Karaginas. This has been the Athletes and the Arts Podcast. Mm-hmm.